Julia wants only one thing, to be allowed to live her life as she chooses, away from the suffocating marriage mart, wanting only to ride her horse and read her books. Perhaps the man seeking her hand is the escape she needs, but he holds a secret of his own. I'm Heather Songster, and this is Hopelessly Romantic. Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to another episode. Today we are falling back into historical romance with The Bell of Belgrave Square by Mimi Matthews. It is the second in Matthews' Bells of London series, the first of which was The Siren of Sussex. I do seem to have a knack for picking up on the second novels in a lot of these series, but for my purposes, I think it's a great indication of how solid the setting is, since it's not unusual for most readers to want to walk into a series in progress, especially where mass-market paperback romances are concerned. The real question is probably going to be whether or not I will want to get my hands on the first novel. Before we really get going, I do want to say that I'm actually really happy with the majority of the Victorian and Regency romances that we've come across so far. I can't think of one that I've disliked outright, and I'm starting to see why it's such a popular genre. I might even go so far as to say that I am a budding fan of the Victorian romance, and today's book is only one more step towards that opinion. All that aside, we have to look at the book as it is. First, I will be perfectly honest with you. The cover is the entire reason I picked up The Bell of Belgrave Square. I was wandering the bookshelves, as one does when one runs a podcast for reviewing books. I can't even remember what other books I picked up that day, because this one stands out so much. It might have even been the only book I took home, because when I looked at the cover, I thought to myself, oh my god, it's me. So okay, let's really examine what we've got to work with here. First, the text of the cover is pretty dominating for the title, but not in an intrusive way. There's a flow in the graphic, and the text fits in quite nicely. Blue is the constant color here, covering pretty much the entire image, especially with the blue background with a floral imprint. But the big defining feature of our cover is a large black horse wearing a blue halter, standing behind a woman in a blue gown, reading a book on a bench. She has pale skin, dark hair, looking as content as can be with where she is. Woman with similar features to my own, reading with a horse? Yep, that is essentially Heather in a nutshell. And when the back blurb describes our heroine as a woman with social anxiety, well, that just sealed the deal. What I really love about the cover is that it's not a manipulated photo or anything like that. It's painted, or at least made to look like a watercolor painting, if not maybe perhaps um, some colored pencil watercolor in there. But it doesn't matter. It looks excellent, fresh, and eye-catching. I mean, it caught my eye, didn't it? In the sea of generic Photoshop couples drowning us from the romance world, this is such a palette cleanser. If there could be any improvement, which I would argue it doesn't, we could add our hero somewhere, but I'm not really keen on changing up the composition here. Besides, looking at the cover for the first book, The Siren of Sussex, it appears that the woman appearing alone with her horse is a theme with the series. Though the cover hasn't been released for the third novel yet, we could probably guess it'll follow suit. Though as much as I am enchanted by the cover, it is what is inside that counts. So let's go. Our story starts with Julia Witchwood, and the witch there is spelled with W-Y-C-H. 
No matter, it's still a baller name anyway. But she's out, mostly alone, riding her horse out in the park in a place called Rotten Row. I don't know why it's called Rotten Row, but I'm not asking, since Julia doesn't seem to care one whit. Julia is enjoying the morning solitude, out riding early enough where people aren't really paying any attention to her. Her horse, Cossack, has such an easy canter that she's been able to sit and let her mind wander. Not me being jealous, riding a sweet but very bumpy thoroughbred that if I don't have a solid enough seat, I nearly fly out of the saddle. Uh, <laughs> the narration tells us that she's not really thrilled about her upcoming social engagements, since all four of her f- or all three of her friends are away on holiday. These friends are, of course, the group of women that the book series follows. They act as a sort of buffer for Julia during the balls, musicals, and the like. Without them, she's considering just faking being sick, but would it be worth it to endure being bled? So if you're not familiar with it, bloodletting is an ancient medical practice, essentially removing blood from the body via a cut at either the knee or elbow, usually, in order to alleviate illness or disease. If you've heard the phrase, they're in good humor, it can actually be traced back to this old practice. At one point, doctors said the body was filled with the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. You were in good humor when those humors were balanced appropriately. Bloodletting was a way of removing excess blood to teach, uh, to treat certain humeric elements. I'm, I'm going to call it a humeric ailment, but as time went on, we learned more about the body and that humoral medicine wasn't up to snuff. It didn't stop the bloodletting, though, for a very long time. So yeah, fun fact, I had to have a basic knowledge of the humors and humoral medicine for my Shakespeare courses in college, so there you go. But what I'm really getting at here is that we're getting an actual piece of very real Victorian history in our Victorian romance, and I'm loving it. Our author seems to have a significant background in Victorian history, and it shows. In every aspect of the novel, I am comfortable in the world that the author has presented us. I'm not thinking if something is accurate or if something is outlandish. We are given a confident and solid foundation to place our story, and in a way it's reassuring. But back to our story. Julia is having a fine time riding along with no one to bother her, until she comes across another rider. She'd met the captain once before. It had been at Lady Arundel's spring ball. Viscount Ridgway, a mutual acquaintance of theirs, had introduced him to Julia as a worthy partner. In other circumstances, the interaction might have been the veriest commonplace, a few polite words exchanged, and a turn about the polished wood dance floor. Instead, Julia had gawped at Captain Blunk like a stricken nitwit. Her breath had stopped and her pulse had roared in her ears. Afraid she might faint, she'd fled the ballroom before the introduction had been completed, leaving Captain Blunt standing there, his granitine features frozen in a mask of displeasure. Blunt, you see, is a very intimidating man. Not just for the scar on his face, but for his tall and imposing figure, his generally stoic disposition, and, not to mention, the flurry of rumor and scandal that dog his heels. Julia doesn't know a large majority of those rumors, but his presence alone is clearly enough to rattle her. Because the one rumor she does know, for sure, is that Captain Blunt is here to find a wife, and lately she might have ended up in his sights. Oh boy. As for our hero, Captain Jasper Blunt, time is not on his side. 
he does need a wife and not just any kind of wife a wife with a significant dowry he's got children back home in a crumbling estate that needs saving and time is of the essence he's not sure about julia for a bride she's frail unless she's on her horse downright nervous in public and easily intimidated just by his face alone but what she is is rich he knows that there's a dowry of at least forty thousand pounds at stake and that will go a long way to helping him save his family i'll tell you now that i'm going to discuss some spoilery things here i know i don't usually put up a spoiler warning in these reviews it's part of the territory but i feel compelled to encourage you to read this book before going further because jasper has secrets and those secrets are important to the story and how our couple grows together. In the morning chance meeting, Julia gets the chance to apologize for running off on him at the introduction, and after she leaves, we get a little more exposition of what Julia is dealing with with what Jasper knows. Julia's parents are infamous invalids. Doctors are constantly coming around and around all day long doing who knows what. The friend that introduced Jasper to Julia even suggested that Julia wouldn't burden him for long as a wife, if you catch his drift. To his credit, Jasper is appalled at the suggestion that he's going to marry just to become a widow, but Ridgeway has some idea of what's at stake for Jasper. Jasper's three children are technically bastards, legally speaking. He was not married to their mother, and from the sounds of things, was not present in their lives until recently. Jasper has a lot of work ahead of him to earn their trust and their care. So it's off to a society event to solve all of our problems with one perfect solution, marrying for money. Like the bloodletting, I'm glad we're not dancing around the idea that marriage was often just a business transaction at the heart of it for the Victorians. I mean, women had actual dowries for goodness sake. We should not pretend that money wasn't a factor. So it's nice to see a Victorian romance that doesn't hide the Victorian part of that equation. They meet next at a musicale where, you guessed it, musical performances are the focal point of the event. Julia suffers the attentions of the odious Lord Gresham, who is over 50 at least, looking to replace the wife who had died in childbirth, trying to give him an heir. And when she can bear it no longer, she steals away to a quiet room to read a book, where she is found by Jasper, asking her about her literary choices. Now here we hit on a couple of themes in our story. First, lonely versus being alone that is how julia explains it to jasper i think a lot of us came to understand the difference between lonely versus being alone way back in 2020 where even introverts like myself nearly went stir crazy because we couldn't leave our spaces we were lonely because we were isolated in ways that we had no control in julia's case she's not with her friends she is being creeped on by some old gross guy surrounded with people who don't really mesh with her vibe. She is very lonely, so she removes herself to be alone, peacefully on her own, with a book that she loves. When Jasper finds her, she expects him to disparage her choice of book, Lady Audley's Secret, a sensationalist novel, and we come upon another theme of our story, which is novel reading. I know that it might not seem like a big deal, but to the Victorians it kind of was. We'll talk about it a little later on, though. Though Jasper and Julia are able to connect, just for a moment, about books. It is, though, a short-lived connection. Julia insists that he should not pursue her, that they are ill-matched. Jasper disagrees, but he lets her go for the moment, 
and Julia reminds herself that society doesn't think all that well of the scarred captain and that she would do well to avoid him. They do cross paths, following again the theme of books, specifically the books of an author, one J. Marshland, an old favorite of Julia's. She is happy to talk about the author when Jasper approaches her with the topic, and he is very interested in what she thinks of the Marshland novels. Very interested. One point of contention is whether Marshland is a man or a woman. Julia insists that a man could never write romance the way that Marshland does, but Jasper insists that he heard somewhere that Marshland was, in fact, a man. When they cross again on their horses, they start really getting into the nitty-gritty of the Victorian courting scene. And Jasper is honest that he wants a bride with money, and they are both frank about the subject. Julia doesn't seem too dissuaded by his motives, so again we're getting that honesty of historical accuracy. Something I think is really great is that our couple gets to take time to know one another, and they're doing it within the constraints of the Victorian setting. They're seeing each other at society events. They're crossing paths out in the park, on their horses, in the stores. I don't feel like the author is trying to bend rules in order to get these things to work for the sake of the romance. A really great example can be found when, at one event, Julia gets dragged off by the very same creeper who was creeping at her at the first event for the purposes of being creepy, that great Lord Gresham. He takes off with her, alone, which we might all remember is a bad thing, since if they're gone long enough and someone notices, Julia will be ruined and not be able to be married off at all. It is possible that this is Lord Gresham's plan to eliminate nearly all of her options to force her hand, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that Jasper finds out that she has been dragged off, and he gets help. I think that's the important part here to note. He doesn't just run in guns blazing. He gets someone Julia is familiar with by association from her friends, and they can both set the creeper straight together. Jasper does linger behind, and they discuss who he is, that they aren't exactly well-matched, and the idea of first kisses. Before anyone can notice that they've been alone together too long, Jasper decides to indulge Julia on some of her fantasies. It was more than a first kiss. It was acknowledgement. A physical validation of their unspoken attraction to each other. Something raw and honest and imbued with an undercurrent of soul-quaking passion. He wasn't particularly suave or seductive about the business. On the contrary, there was a certain masculine ruthlessness to his kiss. It spoke of the soldier that he'd been, a man used to taking what he wanted, to prevailing against all odds. Had he wished to, he could have easily overpowered her. He didn't. This is an excellent demonstration of the respect that Jasper has for Julia. We see so many kisses with verbs like possessing, taking, and the like. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are even hints of that concept in this passage. But we get a hint of restraint from Jasper, and I think that speaks volumes about him and his morals. Morals, which I might add, are approached in a number of ways, considering that Jasper was kind of a jackass in the Crimean War, in his past in general, but that's a different problem. 
during our narration, we get hints that Julia's life kind of sucks. Whenever she's talking to her parents, it's obvious that they've emotionally abused her most of her whole life. Made to feel small and useless, guilt trips about abandoning them, threatening to sell her horse, even though she has enough of her own money to care for Cossack. Whenever she was in the same room with her father, I felt her misery, her despair that she would never escape this hellscape of her life. Were her parents actual invalids instead of being miserable hypochondriacs? So they would shrug off this mortal coil and grant Julia her freedom. Alas, the only escape for Julia, as it was for many Victorian women, would be that of matrimony. Jasper is aware of this. He is able to gather enough information about Julia and her life that he feels confident that not only could she help him at his estate, but he could help her gain that much-needed freedom. He approaches her father, asks for his blessing and permission, and this old, odious coot refuses, because how dare Jasper even consider taking Julia away from London, away from him, where she will have to care for him until he's dead. Jasper might care for Julia, but without her father's blessing, and thus her dowry, his hands are tied. Things come to a head when Julia feigns illness to avoid another social event. Unfortunately, that means that she has to be seen by the family doctor, who likes bloodletting a little more than he should. He bleeds her twice in one day and orders the removal of her novels. It wasn't so long ago when folks thought that reading too many sensationalist novels was the best way to bring a sensible young woman to ill health. Certainly, they should be putting their energies into sensible hobbies like embroidery, socializing at balls, and doing as they're told. They'll ruin themselves with these wild fantasies instead of reading proper books, sciences, and nonfiction. And these damn kids need to get off my lawn. While I reflect on my good fortune to have been born in a time where I wouldn't have been nearly blood to death for my reading habits, let's take a breath while I tell you about our Patreon. Our patrons will enjoy some exclusive perks, such as early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and being named as a way of thanks when they sign up. You can find our page at patreon.com slash hopelesslyromantic. Your support means so much to me and my technical advisor, and... It will go a really long way to help me bring you all more stories in the future. While people might raise their eyebrows at our choice of reading materials, at least we can know that no one can stop us from reading what we truly want to read. Yep, once upon a time, people thought novels were rotting our kids' brains with their nonsensical storylines and unrealistic fantasies. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And this is an age where women could be committed to a hospital for any number of ailments, including reading too many novels. It was just one way to control women and what little property they were afforded, much like the case of Julia's father gatekeeping her and her dowry from a man who might genuinely care for her. I wish I was kidding. I need to applaud the author for Julia's predicament. Having been bled, with more bleeding to follow, Julia's face with a future where her father will only allow the grossest old man in the tone to marry her, move from her novels and her writing. It really doesn't look good. I felt a tightness in my chest while I was reading the scene. 
I felt that urgency of rescuing Julia because if Jasper couldn't get to her in time, she might very well have died. And if she'd survived, well, she might wish she hadn't. Someone might take offense at her heroine needing rescue by the hero. And I'll push back on that particular opinion because one, Julia is something of a passive character, though not totally without her own agency. When one has been abused, emotionally neglected by the people who are supposed to care for that person, they might find it difficult to know how to escape their world. Julia can't push back because she's been suffocated her entire life. When Jasper hears of what's happened, he barges into her home and into her room even. Quite scandalous. They accept that they aren't exactly the perfect match for one another, but they are at least good for one another in several ways, and they can't deny that they've been attracted to one another during their various meetings. Jasper asks an important what if. What if there was no money? If there was no dowry? Would she still marry him? Julia says that she would. And she does have conditions under which she will marry, money or not. She must be allowed to read whatever, ride her horse whenever, and to have pets. Oh, and she wants to wait to consummate their marriage. She wants time to really get to know him. Jasper agrees to it all. He carries her out of her old dreary house, into a carriage, to a church where they are married, and then they're off to Yorkshire. When they reach the old, dilapidated estate, Julia isn't put off by it. And she gets to meet Jasper's children, three sweet little chaos gremlins who take time to warm up to her. Also upon their arrival, Jasper gets to find out that Julia's dowry wasn't even 40 or even 50,000 pounds. It was 100,000 pounds. So while half of that would have been provided by her father if he wasn't such a miserable prick, the other 50,000 came from Julia's aunt. To Julia herself, no restrictions. So surprise, Julia is still rich and she can still help save Jasper's estate. And Jasper did have some conditions of his own for their marriage. Julia must not pry into his past, and she must never go into the highest tower room ever. If you've heard of the story of Bluebeard, this will raise alarm bells for you. If you're not familiar, a synopsis. Bluebeard is a rich nobleman who has been widowed six times after his wives disappeared under strange circumstances. He goes to marry another woman and tells her that she may go anywhere in his castle except for a single room. The stories usually agree that this is in the basement. When the curious new wife is visited by her sister, they go exploring and discover that this secret room is flooded with blood and contains the corpses of Bluebeard's six missing wives. Right as Bluebeard returns home, he flies into a rage at his new wife's betrayal and moves to kill her. However, she manages to stall long enough for her brothers to arrive and rescue her. So, we've got an old soldier with a reputation for being a shitheel with his subordinates in war, children with no visible mother, and secret meetings with lawyers. Gosh, for this guy to have a room that Julia can't enter under any circumstances, it doesn't pass the vibe check. Fear not, dear readers, for this is fluffy romance, and wife-killing romantic heroes aren't a thing. Okay, they shouldn't be, and I haven't found one yet, so let's keep it that way, yeah? We get lots of hints dropped here and there about what it is that Jasper's doing, especially while he and Julia are discussing her favorite J. Marshland novels. I'm not going to spell it out for you, but I don't think I'm being t- terribly subtle about it either. 
Jasper does have other secrets, though, don't you worry. There is a lot of wonderful discovery and character development in this novel, especially with the chemistry between our two leads, allowed to blossom until they finally decide to become husband and wife in every sense. By the time they were both unclothed and he'd taken her to their bed, her body was awash with passionate sensation. Any discomfort was fast replaced by a feeling of infinite closeness, as if they shared the same breath, the same heartbeat. He had become part of her. Never in her life had she been so vulnerable with another person, so totally open and exposed, and Jasper was there with her all of the way just as vulnerable as she was, and as much in need of tender reassurance. She gave it to him, instinctively, kissing him, holding him, and cradling his big body with her own. There isn't a lot of steamy sex, or spice in general. This is just about as graphic as we'll get for this novel. However, this moment and many others are littered throughout the book, describing the sexual tension between our couple. It's organic, and while not graphic, it certainly gets the point across. Absolutely proof that we don't need spicy to be sexy. And there's a lot more to discuss with this novel, such as after their marriage. And when Julia is introduced to the children, she embraces a confidence that had eluded her in London. Removed from the oppressive prison that was her parents' home, she's finally able to flourish into the woman she was always meant to be. There's the growth of her relationship to Jasper's children, and his growth as well where his family is concerned. And perhaps in the topic of most interest to myself, this novel also touches on that oh-so-popular of romantic tropes, the Beauty and the Beast retelling. Because it is there, Jasper had to undergo a transformation of sorts in order to survive before he met Julia, and then he gets to meet her, and Julia had to leave Jasper's estate to see her father, even if it's not out of filial piety. I want to talk about it so much, but I've run out of time, and it's a little more spoilerly than I want to deal with at the moment. I'm telling you, go read the book. I'll save it next week for Behind the Page. Trust me, after the last couple of books that we've read, I really have something to say dealing with these fairy tale retellings. For now, I'm going to take us into Heather's final score. Beginning with the cover, as always, I'm giving it a 5 out of 5. I can't help it. For me, it's exquisite. I can't think of anything that I would change about the execution or composition, and if I do say anything, it's that the cover did its job getting my attention. Next for romance, I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5. I feel as though they had a very organic romance. We did get hints of that spark of something trope, mostly when Julie was feeling flummoxed whenever Jasper was around, but to her credit, Jasper is rather intimidating. And as she learned that he was not the rumors, she could feel safe around him. And those feelings of trepidation become feelings of anticipation. The only thing that brought the score down was some of that communication between the two of them. I'll have to talk more about it next week since I don't have a lot of time, but their bare bones is, is that both Jasper and Julia laid down their boundaries, and Julia just kind of walked over them. Not aggressively or maliciously, these boundaries mostly dealt with Jasper's past, and it just kind of kept coming up in circumstances. So Julia just kept pressing those boundaries, despite him asking her not to delve into it too much when they were married. 
it does become clear in the end why he was protective of his past, and I'll talk more about it later. But still, don't go poking things that don't need to be poked. Now drama is getting a 3 out of 5. Not a bad score, just the level of drama that we're dealing with. And it's about what I would expect for a Victorian romance. We've got some relatively low stakes, everything that we're worried about is directly related to our players, and nothing will end the whole world if they don't get together. They were important to one another, of course, and they both needed the other's support, and that's really all we need. The most drama I felt was when Jasper had to rescue Julia from the clutches of her parents. Next, Spice is a 2 out of 5. Not a lot to say here because we didn't get a lot of steamy sex, but our story did an excellent job of setting up that sexual tension. Like I said before, we don't need Spice to be sexy. At no point was I hoping for anything hotter than what we got, but I wouldn't have said no to anything hotter either. Finally, Realism is getting a 4 out of 5. Again, not a lot I need to add. This was a realistic setup for the context of the Victorian marriage market, and Julia's struggles with social anxiety hit pretty darn close to home for me. There are a few wacky moments, like Jasper literally carrying Julia out of her house to marry her, but otherwise I'm pretty happy. And it leads me to the question of how to place this novel in our rankings. On one hand, I loved it, every bit of it. On the other, there were moments that had my eyebrows up, such as Julia walking on Jasper's boundaries. And then we have to grapple with the fact that I'm already biased towards anything involving horses. I mean, if I had any actual personal complaints, I'd say I want more horses. Like on the level of a wolf in Duke's clothing from way back when. There were lots of horses there. More please. But there is one fact that keeps shining above everything else. It is more than obvious that our author knows what she was doing. Not once was I worried about historical accuracy, and I didn't question too much about the relationship between Jasper and Julia. The twist at the end was delightful, and how she played with our referenced fairy tales was refreshing. On my first read, I wasn't sure if the novel would make it, but now I'm more than confident with my choice. For my final score, the bell of Belgrave Square reaches the gold star shelf with five totally not secret novel writers out of five. Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwang Yin Cho. Hopelessly Romantic is an H with K production. And it doesn't matter what you read, only that it's what you love.